with me in the Bible to Luke's Gospel, chapter 19. Luke's Gospel, the 19th chapter. I'll read a few verses together. So Luke 19, reading from verse 1. Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he sought to see Jesus who he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass by that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. But when they saw it, they all complained, saying, He has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Amen. Now, over the years I have received uh, many invitations, invitations to weddings, and by the way, I should say it's nice to see Gurley and Sam here this morning, uh, their wedding was not so long ago, and that was an invitation I was happy to attend, invitations to parties, birthday parties, anniversary parties, invitations to breakfasts, to lunches, dinners, invitations to special services, conventions, conferences, invitations sometimes to civic functions. Some of these invitations were formal, uh, some were informal. Some I attended, and some I didn't attend, and some I couldn't attend. Some I was glad I attended, and some, having attended, wished I hadn't attended. We've all been to those, haven't we? Now, the Bible has some invitations which are on offer. Simple invitations that take the form of come. An invitation by God for man to come. Now here's an invitation in Luke chapter 19 regarding Zacchaeus. It tells us that Zacchaeus was a tax collector. Now you have to understand that tax collectors it was one of the most hated professions in all Israel. To be a tax collector, uh, you would have the vilest reputation. You probably would be disowned by even your own family. If people saw you coming down the street, they would walk on the other side. They would literally hate your guts, if I could put it as bluntly as that. The reason was, because they felt they were traitors uh, to their own countrymen. Uh, these are people who collect taxes on behalf of the despised Romans, and if that was not bad enough, 
then they would skim off the top and line their own pockets, and most of them would become very rich, as was Zacchaeus. And so Zacchaeus was a man who was uh, despised. However, there was something about him. There was something that was stirring in his heart that Son of God recognized because the Lord knows the hearts of all men. No doubt he had heard much about Jesus of Nazareth, this miracle-working prophet. No doubt he had heard that he had been coming through Jericho into his territory. And there may never be another chance to see him, to see who he was, it says. And so being a man of, of uh, a short wheelbase, as we would say, vertically challenged, uh, he realized that with the crowds that would be milling around Jesus, he wouldn't get the chance uh, to see him face to face. So the next best thing was to climb up a nearby sycamore tree waiting for Jesus to pass by. And so there he was, curious, wondering, something stirring within his heart, wondering about this man, this unorthodox rabbi who could heal blind eyes, who could open up deaf ears, who could make lame walk. And so he was anxious to see who he really was. And while he was there sitting up that tree, minding his own business, Jesus came passing by and stopped and looked up and said, Zacchaeus! And I could imagine that the whole crowd hushed. And I could imagine at that moment Zacchaeus' heart must have been beating out of his chest. No place to hide. This is a prophet. Would he expose him for the great sinner that he was? Would he reveal to all the way he had conned his own people and cheated them and connived? Would he expose him to the whole world for what he was? And I'm sure in that brief moment, in that millisecond, all of these thoughts would flash through his mind. Zacchaeus! Make haste. Calm down. Today, I must abide at your house. <laughs> what a relief. I could almost hear him going, <sighs> what a relief. And so he clambered down and stood before Jesus. If men are ever going to find out how Jesus really is, if they're ever going to see him, who he really is, then they've got to come down and meet with him. They've got to come down from their high positions of their high opinion of themselves and come down. They've got to come down from that high place of good works. They've got to come down. They've got to come down from that high place of self-righteousness and they've got to come down and they've got to humble themselves and come down. And that's all the Lord wants us to do. That's what he wants men to do is to humble themselves and come down. Religious people especially, and there was lots in Jesus' day, and they... They counted on their own feeling of righteousness. They trusted in their own good works. 
They trusted in their own sense of decency. And none of that, all of that self-righteousness, the Bible says, there's filthy rags in God's sight. They have to come down. And every one of us here this morning, at some point in our lives, we came down. We came down. We were curious about Jesus, who he was, but we had to come down. And Zacchaeus came down. And he humbled himself. And it says in verse 8, Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. There was a very clear, obvious repentance. And not only repentance on his part, but restitution on his part. Which showed a very clear repentance. It wasn't just words. It was deeds also. And it exposed his heart at that moment as a man who had truly, honestly repented before God. And was willing to make restitution to anyone and everyone he had ever cheated in his life. And on top of that, to give half of what he had to the poor. Instantly, a great change came into this man's heart. But you see, he had to come down. He had to come down. And all of us know, maybe we were the same, I don't know, but all of us know people and they need to come down if they're ever going to meet with the Lord. They need to come down from their position of trusting in themselves. Self-righteous people are the hardest people to reach. They already feel they're good enough. They already feel they're better than most. And they're the hardest ones to reach. And unless and until that moment whenever they come down, they're never really going to know who Jesus is. And so there's the first invitation to come down. Second invitation is in Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30. You know this very well. The words of Jesus, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now here is a wonderful invitation for us, for anyone actually, to find true rest. Because there is a restlessness in the heart of every person. And there is a thirst in the heart of everyone. A restlessness that can't seem to find peace or comfort and a thirst that can't be quenched and a hunger that cannot be filled and a burden that cannot be lifted. Only Christ, He's the only one that can calm the heart, isn't He? He's the only one that can quench the thirst. He's the only one that can satisfy the hungry soul. He's the only one that can lift the heavy burden. 
And so he makes the invitation, come unto me, all you who labor. Now the word here means the most tiring, the most wearisome kind of labor. The kind of labor that is exhausting by the unending nature of it. Where we're laboring and it seems to be unending. And we're getting tireder as we labor. And there seems to be no end in sight to it. No finish line can we see. Maybe no light at the end of this particular tunnel. And all of us has been there in situations where we have labored spiritually and struggled. And it's been difficult. And we have become tired and exhausted. All you who labor under heavy laden. Now this is a military term. Whenever soldiers uh, go out on maneuvers or they, they go out on an assignment, uh, they have to take a backpack uh, and if the maneuvers is local or if the assignment is just a little bit up the road, then they just take a little backpack because that's all they need. But if the assignment is far away, if it's going to be a long assignment, if it's going to take weeks or maybe months, they've got to take a big backpack because they've got to have everything in there. They've got to have their bivouac in there. They've got to have their shovel, their spade, their change of clothes. Everything's in that backpack that they've got to carry. And it's heavy. It's a heavy one. Whenever the journey's long, the assignment's going to take a while, then the load that you carry often becomes very heavy. Heavy laden. I wonder, have you been carrying this burden for a long time? I wonder, is its weight exhausting you? It's time to come to the Lord for a rest. The word means to pause, to literally take a breather, to be refreshed in spirit. Now we know we talk about putting our shoulder to the wheel and our nose to the grindstone, but you can only do that so long without resting. Isn't that the truth? There comes a time when you have to rest. I know we don't see it very often today because of the modernization of farming, but years ago when I was growing up, oftentimes you uh, went past a field, maybe a barley field or a corn field or a wheat field, whatever, straw, and you'd have seen some man with a scythe, and he was scything, cutting that by hand. And he was there all day, scything, putting it into stooks and scything and Every now and again he would stop and he'd take out his sharpening stone and he would stop and he'd take a breather and he would sharpen the scythe. And you may think, well, if he would just keep at it, he'd be finished sooner, wouldn't he? He keeps stopping and sharpening that scythe. If he just keep at it, he'd surely be finished. But he knows enough to know that if he just kept at it without stopping and sharpening the scythe, not only would he not get it finished, but it would be a whole lot harder to get finished. But as long as he stops periodically and sharpens the scythe, then it'll just cut through that like a knife through butter. And it'll be a lot easier to do and a lot quicker to do. Jesus says, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you 
and learn from me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What did Jesus do when the burden was heavy? What did he do? He took time out. And he up the mountain, went into the garden to pray. Alone. By himself. Away from the maddening crowd, as it were. Oftentimes even away from his own disciples. Just that space where just him and the Father together talking. What was he doing? He was pausing, taking a breather, getting refreshed, sharpening the scythe. And that's what we have got to do. Notice he says, come unto me. It's emphatic. I want you to come. I'm inviting you to come. I'm willing you to come. Please come unto me. That's how he's saying it. Because he knows what we need better than we know ourselves. Now isn't it a case when you're tired and you're weary and you're struggling in the heat of the day and when you're carrying the burden, isn't it, isn't it strange how we know we need to rest and we know we want to rest, but we struggle on instead of taking time just to sit before the Lord and just rest in His presence. You know, it's good sometimes, uh, I know we ought to pray and we ought to pray more than we do pray, I know that, but it's good to sometimes just to actually sit in his presence and sometimes just say nothing. Because when we start to talk, we inevitably start to ask him for something. And sometimes it's good just to sit in his presence and say, Lord, I'm just going to rest before you today. I'm just going to take it easy today. I'm just going to sit in your presence, enjoy your company. And just think about him. Maybe read the odd scripture that would come to mind. Or, or maybe begin to just quietly worship him. And as you do that, you'll find that in those moments you're sharpening the scythe. And then when you're finished, you're better equipped for that day. But do we do that? Not as often as we should. Isn't that the case? So he said, come unto me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Is the load you're carrying now, does it seem easy and light? If it isn't, then that's the time we need to come to him, isn't it? And to rest a while. Just in his presence. And there's no question about it. We'll feel much better for it. We'll be stronger for it and wiser for it. And then here's another one in Matthew chapter 16. Verse 24 of Matthew 16, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. 
But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and he will reward each according to his works. If anyone desires to come after me, there's the choice. There's the choice. When Jesus invited his disciples to come after him, he didn't plead with them. He didn't bargain with them. He simply said, come. And they came. The Lord's not going to plead and bargain with us to follow him. He just says, come. Come. At one point, he began to preach hot and heavy about discipleship. And it says, from that moment, many of his followers no longer walked with him. Many of them. As soon as he began to tell them what the cost was going to be and what it was going to be like, many of them turned their back and walked away. And it must have been a lot because he turned around to his disciples and says, will you also go away? Notice he didn't say, now fellas, now I see, you know there's others going, now please don't leave me, please don't leave me. You know, I won't make it if you leave me. He said, will you also go away? That's when Peter says, Lord, where else can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. If anyone will come after me, there's the choice. And he always leaves the choice to us. He's not going to force us. He's not going to twist our arm up or back. He just says, follow me. Come. Aren't you glad you came? <laughs> Isn't it a great journey? Someone's been following for a long time now. It's been great. Then he says, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. There's the cost. Let him deny himself. At some point, every believer who has ever come after Jesus, ever followed the Lord, has found out there's a cost involved. That cost may be the friendship of someone. Someone that you thought was your friend until you met the Lord and then you discovered they didn't want to be your friend anymore. And they dropped you like a hot potato. A family member did not agree. Made life difficult. Thought you were a fool. A fanatic. A religious nut. Everybody likes to be liked. We all love to be loved, don't we? We don't want anybody talking bad about us. Heather to her face or behind her backs. But that just may be part of the cost. It may cost you something in your career or your business. You may have to run your business differently than the rest of the world. You may have to change your career. 
The particular work you're in may not be conducive. You may be asked to uh, to uh, cut corners and cheat. I remember whenever I got saved in the place where I was in, I was on a factory floor and we were uh, on bonus work. And uh, at the end of the day, uh, because we were on bonus, it meant our boss was on bonus, our foreman. And at the end of the day, he would come around the shop floor and he would check off the many units you had made that day. And if he didn't come up to scratch, he asked you why. And sometimes it wasn't your fault. The machinery had broken down or... Uh, the, the materials didn't come in time for you to finish it and maybe there was an odd time when you were just too tired and you just weren't up to the mark on that particular day and so he would come and, and if you're quite close if you're quite close to what he felt that you should have got for you to get your bonus so he got his bonus you didn't get your bonus he didn't get his so when you're right close to it he'd say how many is short? Well, I'm five short or I'm ten short. Oh, that's all right. We'll, we'll just put in. I said, hold on a minute. No, no, you don't just put in. You put in what, I, what I've done. Ah, but you'll not get your bonus. I says, that's fine. That's fine. I'll make that up tomorrow. Don't you worry. <laughs> didn't like it. I think my bonus, he didn't get his. And he didn't worry about putting a few extra in. <laughs> Well, my way was, well, there was a time maybe I would have put a few extra in, even more than he had to put in, but not anymore. Now that I'm saved, can't do that. Uh-uh. No, thank you. And sometimes it costs. Sometimes people turn against you. I tell you what, if you were a Muslim, or you were a Jew, or you were a Hindu, or you're a Buddhist, or you're a Mormon, or a Jehovah's Witness, and you get saved, you would know what it would be to pay a cost. Because more than likely, your family, every last one of them, would turn you away, would never want to see you again, would totally disown you from their family. I don't think any of us has ever had to pay that cost. But here's the wonderful thing. Following Christ always pays more than it costs. Always. And if not in this life, certainly in the next life. But God's the one who keeps the books. He's the great accountant. And he's figured it all out. <clears throat> and he's no man's debtor. <laughs> and no matter what we have given up for the sake of the gospel, he will always, always pay you more than it costs. And that's the wonderful thing. But you've got to feel the cost sometimes. But let me ask you this. No matter what it costs us, what is that in light of what it cost him? <laughs> Nothing. Nothing. In comparison, it's nothing. So there's the cost. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. There's the cross. If a man or a woman is carrying a cross up a hill, you know they're going to die. They have no ambitions. They have no other objectives. There's no agendas. If you've got a cross on your back and you're going up a hill, you are going to die. And this is speaking of dying to self. Dying to self. No agenda no ambition, no grand plan. 
dying to self. This is why Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul is saying here that the big I has been crucified. The big me has died. It's no longer I. And he had a big I in his life. He had a big me about himself. <laughs> he had a history. He had a pedigree as far as the Jews were concerned. But he says it no longer matters. In Philippians chapter 3, in verses 1. Well, read from verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord, for to me to write the same things to you it is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs. It's the two-legged kind. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. We are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yet, yet indeed I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. Glory to God. There's the cross. Say, does God not want you to have your own dreams and visions and ambitions? Yeah, in fact, he says, I'll, I'll give you the desires of your heart, provide it, provide it. We have submitted it to him. And what if he says, uh-uh, I don't want you to do that. I don't want you to have that. That's where the cross comes in. That's where the cross comes in. So that we submit everything to him. Surprising what will God let you have if you submit it to him. And sometimes he tests us, doesn't he? It's not that he wants it. It's not that he doesn't want us to have it. He wants to see are we willing to give it up if we have to. It's amazing what he lets you keep if you're willing to give it up for his sake. Then he says, for whoever desires to save his life shall lose it. There's the contradiction. Because the world thinks if you spare yourself, you will save yourself. God says if you save yourself, you'll lose yourself. There's the contradiction, isn't it? Sounds a total contradiction. But so does give and you receive. 
so does die and you'll live. Except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. See, this is the big contradiction. And this is the thing that we in the kingdom of God have got to get our heads around. Because if you think you can live in the kingdom and think the way the world thinks, it's not going to work. You just live a life of total frustration. But if you see how the kingdom works, and you're prepared to employ the kingdom principles in your life, then it works a whole lot better. <laughs> and it's a different world, isn't it? You're not saved too long till you find out you're living in a different world with different rules <laughs> and different principles and different attitudes. And it sounds contradictory. And the world will look at you and shake their heads and think, how does that work? But it does work. That's the wonderful thing about the kingdom of God. Then he says, For whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. There's the crown. Whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. Now you see, that's just not necessarily talking about actually losing your life as a martyr. But losing your life for his sake putting everything down for his sake, willing to change direction for his sake, willing to do perhaps what you don't want to do for his sake, willing to seemingly lose for his sake, get you a crown. Get you a crown. I've gone into it too many times to say it again, but you know there's different crowns the Bible speaks of. Crown of righteousness, soul winner's crown, all kinds of crowns. There's a martyr's crown. There's crowns await the believer in Christ. And particularly if you have lost your life for his sake. I think of a number of people who has given up just about everything for his sake. But then they find it. I remember years ago, uh, speaking to Bob McAllister, Bob and Alma, of course, were missionaries for 40 years in the Congo. And he said, you know, David, uh, we reared our children there in the mission field. And he says, I'm not criticizing others. He says, that was their choice, but... He says, so many, many, many missionaries we knew, they come off the field to educate their kids. This is the biggest mistake they ever made in their lives. He says, we kept our kids on the field. We educated them on the field. And he says, they had the best education. And he says, every single one of them is serving the Lord today in missions. <laughs> and he says, I could count in fact, he says, I could run out of counting. The missionaries who come home to, serve, to, to educate their kids, and they lost their children. They lost them to the world, and they never went back onto the field. It seemed like the McAllisters lost their life, but they really find it. They really find it. And all of them today are serving the Lord. Even their grandchildren are serving the Lord. 
because they decided to lose their life for his sake. Dear, almost got her crown today. <laughs> he said she would have given her last penny away. He said, whenever we were leaving the field, he says, over the years we lived there, we had gathered up bits and pieces. And he says, we're coming back to live here. We had nothing. We had no home to go to. We hadn't anything. And he says, I decided, me the man, I decided that we would gather up all our furniture and we'd take it back to Ireland with us. Because he says, it's all we had. We had nothing. He says, I knew Alma, Alma didn't want that. But he says, I thought, well, I've got to provide. I've got to do something. And this is all we've got. So he says, I decided, I made the decision. We're going to take it back. He says, in the end, although Alma overruled me, and a couple of days before we were due to go, she gave it all away. <laughs> the whole lot of it. He says, everything, every stick, she gave away. He says, that was the best thing she ever did. He says, we came home with nothing. And he says, we could offer, after offer, after offer, offer. He says, in the end, he says, with that much stuff, I didn't know where to put it. <laughs> Whoever loses her life for my sake shall find it. Here's the crime. Now you notice I'm alliterating here. This is the only word I can think of to finish up. It's maybe not a very good one, but you'll get the meaning. Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? There's the clincher. I don't know if that's a, an English word or not. I don't think it's in the English language, but you know what a clincher is, isn't it? What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? There's a clincher. There's the crux of it. Did you ever think about it? If you gain the whole world... The richest company on earth today, believe it or not, is the Apple computer company. 380 billion. That's what they're worth. And I have subscribed to that somewhere along the way. 380 billion. That's more than the whole economy of Singapore. It's more than the whole GDP of Israel and of Lebanon and of Jordan combined. It's more than the 32 biggest banks in the whole Eurozone. It's more than the gold reserves and the New York Federal Gold Reserves, it's more. And it's still not the whole world. America currently, to pay their civil servants, their government agencies, they currently have something like $72 billion in cash. Apple has $80 billion in cash. They have more than American government. And it's still not the whole world. America today owes, owes $15 trillion. Biggest debtor nation on the face of the earth. 
Now, to get that into some kind of perspective, $15 trillion. From the day that Jesus was born over 2,000 years ago, if you spent $1 million a day from the day that Jesus was born to this day, you wouldn't even have reached $1 trillion. And they owe 15 times that. It's an enormous amount, isn't it? And it's still not the whole world. Not even close. If you owned all the tea in China, sorry, all the tea in India, then no China made tea. Somebody says, you know that Yorkshire tea you get in Tesco's? Somebody says, I'd like a trip to the, to the tea plantations in Yorkshire. <laughs> See it being made. <laughs> if you owned all the tea in India and all the oil in the Middle East and all the diamonds and gold in Africa, if you owned all of that combined, it still would not be the whole world. And Jesus says, what would a man gain? What would he profit if he had all of that and he lost his soul? He'd be the biggest loser, wouldn't he? What can a man give in exchange for his soul? Our lives are so important to God that he paid the ultimate greatest price, his only begotten son. Nothing in the universe could compare with the Son of God. And he gave him freely for you and for me, for our souls. And so when he says, come after me, follow me. Nothing, nothing on earth is more important than that decision. Nothing. Nothing. And to turn away from him Nothing is more foolish than to turn away from him except his invitation. So he says, come down to me, come unto me, come after me. There's just three invitations. There's plenty more, but there's just three. Have we accepted his invitation? We came down, didn't we? Are we coming on to? Are we coming after? Let's pray. Tony's going to come and uh, do the table.